Now, we come to Psalm 68, and this, again, is a very wonderful psalm that we have. Now, the preceding psalm that we just looked at, it goes back to Numbers, as we saw, the sixth chapter, verse 25. Now, this psalm goes back to Numbers, the tenth chapter, verse 35, and we'll get to that. I'm going to hit high points here, and that's what I'll have to do. It opens with, "...let God arise." Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. Now, this goes back to Numbers, the 10th chapter, verse 35. Now, when Israel was ready to begin the wilderness march each day, this is the way that they began. And when they would begin the wilderness march, Moses would say this, Numbers 10, 35, It came to pass... When the ark set forward, that Moses said, Rise up, Lord, let thine enemies be scattered. Let them that hate thee flee before thee. Now, that was when they were ready to march. And this is another wonderful song of triumph and glory. The last psalm was a singing psalm. This is a singing psalm. And what a glorious psalm that it is. Now, you have in this psalm here, it's a great victory song. We find, as we move down in this psalm here, "...sing unto God, sing praises to his name." You see, here again we go. It's to glorify God, and that is what God's moving toward. The day when this earth will glorify him. They don't glorify him today. They take his name in vain. Now, we have in verse 13 an interesting verse. "...though ye lie among the sheepfolds, Yet shall ye be like the wings of a dove, covered with silver, and of feathers with yellow gold. You see that it was back in the book. Well, it's back as far as Genesis, where Reuben, you will recall, he didn't go to the battle because of the fact that he was hiding in the sheepfold. And though he do that, why, even Israel was undecided and inactive, and maybe, but now the dove, and the dove is a sacrificial bird, and it's a type of Christ. And what a picture that we have here in that. Though they be negligent, though they not move as they should or have the enthusiasm, yet the sacrifice of Christ will cover them. But the thing I wanted to call attention to is verse 18. And actually, this could be called a psalm of the ascension. It's quoted in Ephesians 4, 8. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for man, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. And when we finish Psalms, we'll be going to the epistle to the Ephesians, and I'll dwell with that. But when the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, I think he did two things. He took all the saints of the past. They were in paradise. He redeemed them. God had saved them on credit up to that point. But our Lord paid the redemptive price when he died on the cross. He takes them yonder into the presence of God, the spirits of just men, made perfect, by the way. Now, what else did he do? He gave gifts unto man down here so that today he carries on his work through men he's given gifts to. And the interesting thing, every person in the church has a gift. 
And they all don't have the same gift, of course. This is a marvelous verse, you see. Now, we have here that which speaks of a glorious victory for the future. Verse 21, "...but God shall wound the head of his enemies, a hairy scalp." That's Antichrist, "...of such a one as goeth on still in his trespasses." The Lord said, I'll bring again from Bashan. I will bring my people again from the depths of the sea. What a tremendous psalm this is. And then he mentions here little Benjamin. You see, he's talking about the children of Israel. Now, I wondered if somebody today that believed that Great Britain of the Ten Lost Tribes might not come up, says, since this says little Benjamin, it really refers to Big Ben over in London. May I say to you, there's interpretations that are that wild today. But little Benjamin here, you know who it means? It means little Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. Doesn't mean anything else. What a wonderful psalm this is. Now, our study brings us to this 69th psalm. And this 69th psalm is a great messianic psalm. I think it's one of the greatest. I was drawn to it when I was a student in college. And from that day to this, it's been a favorite psalm of mine. So you will forgive me today if I hang around it a little longer than we stay around some others. But it has a meaning that we need to get. And the New Testament pays attention to it. It is quoted in the New Testament more than any other psalm, with the exception, of course, The 22nd Psalm is number one in the hit parade in the New Testament, and Psalm 69 is number two on the hit parade. It's quoted, for instance, several times in the Gospel of John, several times in the Epistle to the Romans, in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and in the book of Acts. And very candidly, I think there are many references to it without actual quotation at all. It's called an imprecatory psalm because from verses 22 through 28, we have what is known as an imprecatory prayer. And yet, we have several quotations, about a half a dozen in that section where it's quoted in the New Testament. Now, let's get into this psalm because to me it's one of the most wonderful psalms that I know anything at all. Now, this psalm, as we have put in our notes, and I give this to those that do not have our notes, so you can see what you're missing, because we have here the silent years in the life of Christ. In the Gospels, from the time he was born... Practically, there are one or two references. Dr. Luke gives a reference when he's 12 years of age. But we do not hear from him until he's 30 years of age. And what about that period? Well, this psalm fills that in. And it tells the life of Christ. Now, Psalm 22 dwells on the death of Christ. Psalm 69 dwells on the life of Christ. And you have those dark days in Nazareth and the dark hours on the cross. And then there's this imprecatory section, which actually is a cry for justice. Now, shall we listen to it? Because it is the psalm of his humiliation and rejection. 
Listen as it opens on really a rather doleful note. And it's a lily psalm, because he's the lily of the valley, as well as the rose of Sharon. And he's altogether lovely. Save me, O God, for the waters have come in unto my soul. You notice how he suffered. Actually, the physical suffering was bad enough. But I think that the suffering of Christ in this life was almost unbearable. I'm confident that multitudes of us would have ended our life if we had gone through what he did down here. And none of the ransom ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, how dark was the night the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. Now, that's when he's on the cross. And it's only those last three hours on the cross, actually, in which that cross became an altar in which the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world was offered, for it was then he was made sin for us. But he suffered before, but there is actually no salutary or saving value in those sufferings other than he took the place of humiliation. And this is something that he took voluntarily. The limitation of Christ as a human being was a self-limitation. I'd like to know more than I know. I'd like to expand. We hear today so much about expanding your mind. I'd like to expand mine, but not the method that's being used. But the Lord Jesus, he came down contracted. He became a man. He humbled himself. Now, in that state, he cries out. He says, I sink in deep mire where there's no standing. I'm coming to deep waters where the floods overflow me. Now, this were the floods of suffering. We started that way, born yonder in a stable, actually, which was apparently part of the inn. And I'm not sure about what the stable part was as good as the other part in that day. And the other part was all public. At least he had a place where no one could see what took place except the cows and the oxen and the sheep. And they were better than that leering crowd that was in the inn that filled it. Now, what he's saying here is this. He began in suffering, and now we go to Nazareth, where he was brought up, we're told. Verse 3, I'm weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. My friend, those 30 years were times when his eyes were red with weeping. Why? Verse 4, and he quoted this. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. Have you ever noticed that this is one that is quoted in the Gospel of John, John 15, verse 25? And he's the one who quoted it, applied it to himself. They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies wrongfully, are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. Now, they hated him without a cause. They had no justification for it. And we are told today that we are justified. And actually, we're saved today 
on the basis of fact that we're told that it's done freely. We have that translation in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And the word is the same as they hated me without a cause. And here it should be being justified without a cause. That is, he didn't find anything in me that would say, oh boy, that fellow McGee down there, he's such a nice fellow, I'll justify him. There's nothing like that. He says he's a poor lost sinner and there was no cause within me. Now they hated him without a cause that I might be justified without a cause. What a wonderful truth there is here. Now, will you notice verse 5? O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from thee. Now somebody says, well, how in the world can that apply to him? You must remember He not only came down here to take the place of a human being, but he came down here, though holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, there in those last few hours on the cross, he's made sin for us. And that's the thing that he was resisting in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let this cup pass. What cup? Well, that cup of sin, my cup, a cup of iniquity the prophets talked about that's filling up. And he took that and... That was awful for him. Comes natural for us. That song, doing what comes naturally. Well, for us it's sin. But for him it wasn't, you see. And that's the thing that makes this suffering here so terrible. Verse 6, Let not them who wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those who seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Now, let me move on. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach. You see, two reasons that he's bearing this. One reason is, because of who he was, they hated him. Same reason that the sinner hates the righteous person today. The one thing that, as a sinner, you resist, it's that. And then the other reason is, because of the fact that he is come to take that place, that low, humble place. Now, here we have something that to me is quite wonderful. Verse 8, I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. Now, that tells me a whole lot that I wouldn't know otherwise. Mary had other children. That confirms what the Gospels say. And not only that, but we find out something else, that these other children treated him as a stranger. Why? Well, because they picked it up that Joseph was not his father. Joseph was their father, but not his. And they hated him for it. And he says here, I'm become a stranger unto my brethren. You think that was a happy home in which he was raised? It was a very unhappy home. Oh, these lovely pictures you have of the home in Nazareth. I have a picture like that. The home in Nazareth. Oh, it's so nice and lovely. Ideal home. It was anything but an ideal home, my friend, that he was raised in. Now, he was a stranger to my brethren. They were his half-brothers and an alien under my mother's children. And this is the virgin birth. 
didn't say his father's children, his mother's children. Now, will you notice, for the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach thee are fallen upon me. Now, this is a verse, you remember, he quoted also in reference to the temple there. My, they were religious and business termites and doing just about the same amount of damage there in the temple. Oh, they were busy, but far from God. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Now, verse 10, when I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. When he would fast or weep, they would ridicule him for it, say, you're just putting on. Then he says something else here. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. You know what the proverb was? He was illegitimate. That was the word they circulated around. You know, the liberal today, the modernist, isn't the one that thought of the fact that he was an illegitimate son. And you know what they would call him. Because notice what happened, verse 12. Here's what happened in not only the home in Nazareth, but in the little town of Nazareth. Verse 12, they that sit in the gate speak against me. Those were the leaders in the town. And I was the song of the drunkard. The establishment made fun of him. And the drunkards down at the bar, they made up dirty little ditties about him and his mother. And I say to you, friends, this is life in Nazareth. Wasn't so nice up there. And you know why? He took that place, being raised in a town where they said he was illegitimate, in order that I might be a legitimate son of God. Nobody in heaven is going to point their finger at Vernon McGee and say that you're not God's son. You know why? Because he, down here, bore that place for me on the cross and paid the penalty for my sin. My, this is a wonderful psalm. Now, I must move along here. Verse 13, let me read that. But as for me, my prayers unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time. And there's a reference to that, by the way, in 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, verse 2. Now, I move on now to the imprecatory part of it. Verse 22, let their table become a snare before them, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Now, that's quoted, as you well know, in Romans. And it's quoted in reference to the loss. And since it's in the New Testament, I see nothing unchristian about it. I'm afraid these imprecatory prayers have been greatly misunderstood. When you put them back in the position that they should be put in, this is a judgment that he's pronouncing upon the lost. He says here, verse 25, "...let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents." That is quoted, you remember, by Peter in the book of Acts. And then I move on in verse 26, "...for they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness." Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. 
Now, I have a suggestion to make here. You will find it in my book on Revelation when the Lord said something about blotting out the name out of the book of life. Now, that was a warning. He didn't do it. And the question arises, would he ever have done it? The suggestion that I've made, it's not original with me at all. It's one of the many explanations for that passage. And the suggestion is here, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. And when you're born, you're putting God's book of the living. And I take it that you're made a candidate for salvation. And I think when you're blotted out, that you've crossed over the line, and you're no longer a candidate for salvation. And he says, and not be written with the righteous. I would think that that would be the reasonable explanation of this. Now, this psalm closes with, oh, what a glorious song of praise. I will praise the name of God with a song. will magnify him with thanksgiving. Verse 30. You see, he came in humiliation. He's coming back in exaltation. And the only ones that'll be in heaven are the redeemed. Now, friends, there are just two kinds of people in the world today. Lost people, saved people. Redeemed sinners and unredeemed sinners. You can distinguish very easily which one you're in. And then always you have this God's poverty program. Verse 33, For the Lord heareth the poor and he despiseth not his prison. God is going to bring justice to this earth someday. Won't be here till he gets here. Now, when we come to Psalm 70, this is a psalm of David, and it's a brief little lovely thing. And actually, you'll find it in the last part, the last five verses of Psalm 40. And one of the critics says, a fragment accidentally here inserted. Well, I'll agree with the critic if you'll take out the word accidentally. And it's called a psalm of remembrance. Why is it put here again? Because my memory is not very good. And God knew that. Now, maybe yours is a good memory. So God repeated it. He said, by the time you get here, McGee, you'll have forgotten all about Psalm 45. But here's some things to remember. Make haste, O God, to deliver me. Make haste to help me, O Lord. I like that. And then verse 5, but I'm poor and needy. Make haste unto me, O God. Thou art my help, my deliverer. O Lord, make no tarry. And he just wants me to know he's my helper. He wants me to know that he's for the poor and needy. And I come in that class and that he's going to be my deliverer and my helper. And he's that today. Now you have Psalm 71 here. That's an elegy. It's a prayer. It's called a prayer for old age because two verses here speak of that. Verse 9, "...cast me not off in the time of old age, forsake me not when my strength faileth." And this, by the way, is a good psalm for us senior citizens. I have found that this psalm means a little bit more to me today than it did 20 years ago. Verse 18 again, now also, when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not until I have shown thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. Now, let me say this to senior citizens right now. Friends, don't go into the corner and sit in a rocking chair. God hasn't forsaken you. And right down to your dying days, kept you here 
for a purpose. And I'm praying God. I said, Lord, don't let me sit down in a rocking chair permanently, but be sure and give me a rocking chair. I love to sit in one. Many of my friends, where I go, there's certain homes I visit, actually across this country, in certain conferences, they have a chair there that's a rocking chair with my name on it. And I appreciate that, by the way. They always drag out the rocking chair. Well, I love a rocking chair, but I don't want to stay there all the time. I want to be active right on through. And that's the thing I've asked God to let me do. This is a wonderful psalm. Now we come to what is called a psalm for Solomon. And I like the way the New Schofield Bible has put it like that. The critic has said Solomon wrote this psalm. I don't think that Solomon wrote the psalm at all, although it may sound like him. But after all, he's the son of David. And this is David's psalm. Somebody says, how do you know? It concludes with verse 20. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now, this is a psalm that concludes this second section, which is the Exodus section. And in the conclusion of the Exodus section, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And this is a psalm when the God of righteousness, and as you go through this, you'll notice how many times righteousness at the beginning. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and justice. And that is the plank and the platform that no candidate has ever had, as far as I can tell. But the Lord Jesus has that in his platform. He's going to reign someday. And when he does, David says, my prayers are all ended. I'm through praying. It's all been realized. David also said, Back in Second Samuel, you remember? He said, this is my salvation. When? God will put my son on the throne down here. Now, that's what this psalm is all about. Now, friends, we said at the beginning, you can divide the book of Psalms according to the Pentateuch. And then the first 40-some-odd psalms, we had that section that we call the Genesis section. And then we came to that section that is known as the Exodus section. And that began, by the way, with Psalm 42. And now we've come, beginning with Psalm 73, to the Leviticus section. And this is the section where you will find, even in this first psalm, the sanctuary mentioned. Because, you see, the book of Leviticus is the worship in the tabernacle and later on for the temple. One of the greatest books, as we've already said before, in the Bible is the book of Leviticus. Now, as we come to this third major division of the book of Psalms, we find here that the emphasis is upon the sanctuary, the house of God, but what would you emphasize there? Well, the book of Leviticus emphasized two things, the holiness of God, and also that without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins, so that the two words would be holiness and sacrifice. And they will figure largely, I think, in this particular section here also. And we find here some of the very wonderful psalms. And we begin with a series that David did not write. They are the psalms of Asaph. 
And this man, likewise, he was a musician. And this is a psalm of Asaph. So let's begin now with these psalms here of Asaph, Psalm 73. I mean, this is called a psalm of Asaph. And it opens on this basis. Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. Now, immediately, we are drawn to the fact that God is good to Israel, the nation Israel. Does that mean every Israelite? No. It's limited to those that are of a clean heart. Who would they be? Well, it would be those who've come with their sacrifice, who have a desire to serve God and to want to walk with Him. Now, today, if you have been saved, you'll want to walk with God. You'll want to fellowship with Him. You'll want to be clean yourself. You'll want a clean heart. And that follows as the night follows the day or the day follows the night. You cannot come to Christ and accept Him as Savior and continue to live as you did before. If you do, you actually weren't saved. That is the whole story. And I think we need to hold to that rather tenaciously today. Now, therefore, immediately we're put in the presence of God, but we're put in the presence of God on the basis of the fact that he has cleaned us. He's cleaned us up. When we come to him, we have forgiveness of sins, and we're washed, a washing of water by the Word of God. Then we find that we are not only washed by the blood of Christ, but we're washed by the Word of God, and the Word of God sanctifies us. And then we want to walk well-pleasing to him. Now, this man who came into God's presence, who could say, God's good to Israel, he had a problem. Now, I think his problem is your problem and my problem, too. Or maybe it isn't yours. It's been mine. And the problem is this. Why does God permit the prosperity of the wicked? And why is it that God's people seem to suffer more? Now, as a pastor... Many times I find myself rather puzzled. I'd see God's people tried. I'd see God's people suffering. And then I would see the prosperity of the wicked. And it was hard for me to understand it. Now, it was brought home to me. When our first child was born in the hospital, God took that child. The little one died. I only heard the cry of the little one. That's all the little one ever did in this life was cry, but she sure had a message for a lot of folk because in that little book of mine, The Death of a Little Child, that's the message I gave at her funeral. And may I say to you, I never shall forget that day across the hall from where my wife was, there was a very wealthy couple. My, they had rich friends. I drove up in an old beat-up Chevrolet, and they all drove up in Cadillacs out in the parking lot. They went in. They all had champagne, and they were celebrating the birth of a little boy. And he was a precious-looking little baby. All babies are, I guess. Some of them, you know, look like they got heads like a, you know, a 10-cent watermelon, but 
Even then, they're precious to the parents. All of us think our, you know, every crow thinks their little crow's the blackest one of all of them. And so they all brought in champagne, and they celebrated, and very rich. The nurse told us, one of the richest families. And I went out that night, I never shall forget, they had a balcony there. I went out and sat down. It was summertime. And I cried out to God. And I'll be honest with you, to this good day, I don't know why God took ours and left that one. Well, they had money. They're rich. And boy, did they live it up. I've seen write-ups about them. They've been in trouble several times. But that little one now is how old my daughter would be. And I'll be honest with you, I don't understand it. I don't have the answer today. But somebody says, well, then, you mean you're a minister and don't have the answer? No, I don't have it. Well, then, how are you able to comfort others? Well, I'll tell you how. I don't have the answer, but I know who does. And he told me to walk with him by faith. And he said that the way he has to test me is to put me in the dark. Then I reach out my hand and take his. And he said, you can trust me. And I don't know why, but he knows why. And someday, my friend, he's going to explain why. Now, you know, Asaph had that problem. He was a musician and a Levite, and he had a problem like that. Maybe you've got a problem like it, and it's pretty hard to understand. Now, will you notice what he says, verse 2, But as for me, now God's good to Israel, but as for me, he's good to that remnant. And Asaph's part of that remnant, but he's got this problem. As for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph said, I looked around me in this nation, and I noticed the wicked among our people were the one prospering, and the godly were not. Listen to him. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued with other men. Therefore pride compass them about like a chain. Violence covereth them like a garment. They're arrogant. Oh, how arrogant this couple was. I've never seen anyone so arrogant. And filled with pride. Then there's something else. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. <laughs> These folk had everything. I don't think they've had the fun that really I've had in this life, because when I got a new something or other, it sure was a joy to me. It wasn't to them. They had it all along. And their eyes did. I hadn't thought of that until I studied this psalm after that. Their eyes were bleary. You know, puffs under their eyes. Been drinking too much. Too much nightlife. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. In fact, the mother of that little fellow would have been beautiful if her face hadn't shown so much sign of dissipation. It was written all over. Now, will you notice? They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They don't mind walking on the poor. I think it's been quite interesting. Someone brought out some time ago, I was reading it, that the leaders in this, what they call it, H-E-W, that the leaders in it that have children, 
none of them go to an integrated school. That's interesting, isn't it? And they've insisted that all the rest of us obey the law. The rich, my friends, you look where they are. They're not following the line that you and I have to follow at all. This is something that can make you bitter as you look around you. Now, notice what they do. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. I listen to these rich people today, and they're the ones that are on television. They're the ones that make the news. Their tongue walketh through the earth. And I know of nothing that enables it to walk better than television. Well, radio does pretty well, too. Verse 10, Therefore his people return here, and waters of a full cup are wrung out of them. Poor God's people, they are taxed to death, and they are in trouble, and pay for everything. Well, I'm told that there are some rich that pay no taxes at all. They've really got it made. I haven't found out how they do it, by the way. And they say, how doth God know? <laughs> They're not interested in God. He doesn't know about them, and is their knowledge in the Most High. They're not interested in God. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. That's that crowd, friend. Does that ever bother you? It bothers me. Well, listen to this. Verily, I've cleansed my heart in vain, washed my hands in innocence. Asaph said, well, I've attempted to live for God and it looks like it doesn't pay. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it is too painful for me. Asaph said, this thing worried me, gave me sleepless nights. Until when? Now we come to the answer. Verse 17 until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now we come into the temple of God here. Then understood I their, what? Their end. It's not in this life, but the end of these folk. And that's the reason that the Lord Jesus gave only one parable, and it's about a rich man and a poor man, when he wanted to illustrate after life. One was rich. One was poor. And, my friend, if you don't come to the Word of God, you're going to get bitter as you look at the injustice that's in this world today. But when you come to him, you can read a parable like that, and you're going to find out that God is going to judge the rich. That rich fellow, he headed for the place of torment right now. That was his end. But at the funeral, you couldn't have seen that because all the liberal preachers pushed him right into heaven. And they said nice things about him and how much he'd given to charity and all that sort of thing. But friends, he was in a place of torment. And that poor fellow that they didn't even give him a decent burial, they didn't even give him a burial. They threw his body over on the dump heap. But you know, the pallbearers were there waiting for him and they were angels and they took him right into Abraham's bosom. You have to stay very close to God today, friends, or you'll get bitter and cynical as you look in this world and look about you. And that's the reason the sanctuary. And my God today is one you can trust. Now, I don't know the answer to your question, 
because I don't know the answer to my question, but I know somebody who does, and he didn't say he'd tell me right now. He said, you trust me. I've got the answer. Way down here at the end, someday in his presence, he's going to explain it all to us. And then I know something else. And that something else is he's going to show me that what he did was best. And I don't understand that either, friends. But that's what he's going to do. Oh, this is a wonderful psalm. And as a result, what's he going to do? Listen to him. He says in verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast helped me by my right hand. I told you he'd take your hand. He took mine, and he said, Walk with me. That's a lesson I learned. And that's the thing the psalmist says, Thou hast helped me by my right hand. And he took me by my right hand, and it was the right one. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me in glory. (laughs) I'm with him today. And I can say, my life verse is Philippians 1, 6, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. Don't tell me he won't, because he will. And that is the message of this psalm. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. And I can't ask for anything better than that. So I'll just trust him today, if you don't mind, and I'm going on with him. Now we come to Psalm 74. Now, Again, the temple is before us here, and the temple is being profane. It's a masculine psalm, not of David now, but of Asaph. He was a Levite and a musician in the tabernacle. Now, will you listen to him? O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why have you done that? And then he cries out, Remember thy congregation which thou hast purchased of old the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. Now, we're talking about geography, and it must be that land over there and that people. Now, will you notice, lift up thy feet unto the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy hath done wickedly, where? In the sanctuary. Thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their banners for sign. Now, what happened? Well, Jerusalem has been profane. It's been profane several times. And it was profane when there came into it Titus Epiphanes, the Syrian, in the line of one of the generals of this man, Alexander the Great, the family that was given the nation of Syria. Now, he came down, we're told, poured the broth of a sow all over the holy vessel and put up a statue of Apollo there. And that was called by Daniel an abomination in the 8th chapter of Daniel. Then later on, Titus, the Roman king, the Lord Jesus told about him in the Olivet Discourse that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, so that twice now there has been this abomination. And Jerusalem was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And I do not know that he profaned it, other than he just burnt the thing to the ground. He destroyed it completely. Now, this looks forward also to another day that's coming, 
when the temple will be rebuilt, and again it will be profaned in that day that's yet to come. And this is a cry to God that he will deliver his people. And you can imagine how discouraged they must have been when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the temple and burned the city. Now, will you notice this? In spite of all of that, the godly remnant, verse 12, "...for God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth." Then down to verse 18. Now, here are some wonderful verses. "...remember this, that the enemy hath reproached, O Lord, and that the foolish people have blasphemed thy name." The enemy has taken us, and there are a lot of the nation Israel been very foolish. They haven't turned to God. But the remnant, now listen, O deliver not the soul of thy turtle dove unto the multitude of the wicked. Forget not the congregation of thy poor forever. O God, save us even in the midst of all of this trouble. And looks forward to that day. And no matter how bad your trouble is, friends, I do not know what it is, but whoever you are, wherever you are, however you are, whenever you are, He'll deliver you. He says he will. He's delivered his people in lots worse states than we've been in. And in the future, he's going to do even a better job of it. Verse 22, Arise, O God, plead thine own cause. It's again a call to God to move in in victory and a prayer that recognizes that. Now, the 75th Psalm is a song of Asaph. The other was a prayer of Asaph, and it was instruction telling us that you can trust God in all of the trouble. And now here is a song of deliverance, a song of triumph that will come. And it's a psalm, therefore, of faith. Listen to him. Now, this is Psalm 75. "'Under thee, O God, do we give thanks. Under thee do we give thanks.'" For that thy name is near, thy wondrous works declare. Now, God's going to protect his name ultimately in this earth. And actually, what a wonderful, glorious thing that is as it's put before us here in this marvelous 75th Psalm. I want to make a change here, and I'm not quite sure how I should do it. It's when it says, "...when I shall receive the congregation, I will judge uprightly." That should be like this. For I will take hold of the set time I will judge in uprightness. That means when he comes, he has a set time. But when our Lord walked here, he took that place of self-humiliation. He adopted it himself. But he said, no angel knows, no man knows. And he himself, when he was here, took that place. And he said not even the Son of Man, only my Father in heaven. He knows that day to day, and he's coming on that appointed time. And you can't rush him. He'll come when the time comes. And no man knows the day nor the hour. There are quite a few prophetic teachers across the country today that they got a private wire put in between you and heaven recently. They all seem to know. But I don't. And I'm of the opinion they don't either. But the important thing is to note here there is that set time that's coming. And where will the help come from? For promotion cometh neither from the east, from the west, nor from the south. You notice it doesn't mention the north because that's where the enemy is coming from at that time. And only God 
will be able to deliver these people. It looks to the future. Already a prayer of thanksgiving before the event takes place. How wonderful these psalms are. Trust their blessing to your heart. Now, friends, we come today to the 76th Psalm. And I trust you do have the text there before you. It'll make this indeed more meaningful to you. And we today are moving in a section that I would like for you to note. And I trust that this is a point I'm getting over here. And it is that the Psalms are not only the Word of God, but they have been arranged. And I'm not going to insist that the arrangement is inspired. I'm just going to say this, that they tell a story. And you miss a great deal of the message if you miss the arrangement and the message that develops in each one of these series. Now, you will recall that the psalm before this, that is Psalm 75, said, Arise, O God! And it was a great prayer. And God heard the cry of his people now, as we see here in this 76th psalm. And this psalm is a prophetic psalm also. And God will deliver his people out of the clutches, as we saw, of a northern power and their help. They couldn't get it from the east or west or the south. And why not the north? Because that's where their trouble was coming from. That's when Russia comes down into that land, which we believe will be in the Great Tribulation period. Now, this is a very brief psalm, and the next one that comes after this is also a psalm that shows the Lord Jesus reigning in his kingdom as the king priest, the true Melchizedek. And man on this earth is in subjection to him. We talk about a dictator. The Lord Jesus, when he rules, is going to be that. And if you don't love him, want to serve him, you wouldn't find it heaven anyway in that day. And so he's arranged for those who don't want him to be in another place. Now, I come to this psalm. It's a very wonderful psalm. And I'm going to read it in this translation that I've been using. Follow us very closely. In Judah, God is known. In Israel, his name is great. In Salem is found his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Now, there are four geographical places mentioned here, and none of them have to do with Los Angeles, California, or New York City, or any state in the Union, for that matter. Judah is over there. Israel is over there. Salem is Jerusalem, and his tabernacle is there. And then Zion is over there. Now, these are four geographical places. You couldn't miss this. What he's talking about is that land in this psalm. Now, the fact that it has a blessing for us, that is not the interpretation, but the application of the psalm. And I believe all scriptures for us. Now, will you notice... We read, There breaks he the glitterings of the bow, sealed and sowed, and weapons of war. That's the day that the prophets spoke of when they'll beat their swords into plowshares. And until he reigns, you better take that verse off the United Nations, because it won't work. 
until he reigns. But this speaks of peace that's coming on this earth. And he's going to bring peace to this earth. And until the sin of the human heart is either dealt with in redemption or judgment, there can never be peace on the earth. Now, I move on. When he judges, this is what's going to happen to the arrogant, proud, rich crowd that they walk up and down this earth. Listen to him. Thou art shining forth gloriously above the mountains of prey. Now, what are the mountains of prey? Well, that's Jerusalem. That place has been besieged 27 times. I have a record of 27 times that the city of Jerusalem was taken and destroyed or partially destroyed by the enemy. It's been a mountain of prey. The enemy's been there. Now it says, "...spoiled were the stout-hearted. They fell asleep in their sleep." That is an interesting expression. They fell asleep in their sleep. How can you do that? That means that they were not alert, not aware. The world today lies asleep, John says, in the arms of the wicked one. In other words, the world's like a little baby. And the devil has the world asleep. And he says to Vernon McGee, he says, Hush, don't give out the word so loud. You'll wake them up. He doesn't want them waked up. That's what we're trying to do is wake up the babies. Tell them judgment is coming. But also tell them there's redemption for them if they'll turn to Christ. Oh, what a wonderful psalm this is. Now, will you notice? And none of the valiant ones found their hands. I tell you, waking out of sleep, they were like they were in the days of Gideon, you remember, when the Midianites all waked up and they heard the trumpets and they saw the light. They knew they were taken, and they couldn't even find their sword. That is, some of them couldn't. At thy rebuke, O God of Jacob, both chariot and horse are brought down into a deep sleep. This is the time when he's coming, and we are told here, he shineth forth gloriously. Thou art shining forth gloriously. This is the time that Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 61, when he says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. Now, we sometimes sing that in Christmas. Actually, it has no fulfillment at Christmas. That is, at the birth of Christ. It will be fulfilled when he comes again to this earth. And this will be a great day, and it's yet in the future. Now, he says... Also, and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day, the shining of a flaming fire by night, for upon all the glory shall spread a defense. That's Isaiah 4, 5, and it speaks of that day that's coming. The Shekinah glory will be there, of course, in the person of Christ. The day of vengeance is come now, the day of vengeance of our God. And we read that in verse 7. Thou, thou must be feared, and who can stand before thee when thou art angry? From heaven thou didst thunder forth in judgment. The earth feared and became silent when God arose to judge, to save all the meek of the earth. Now the great day of his wrath has come, 
who shall be able to stand. John said that in Revelation 6, 17. Now, all things are going to be put under his feet. Listen to this, verse 10. For the wrath of man praiseth thee, thou restrainest the remainder of wrath. And God says that he lets man go only so far. And I think during the Great Tribulation, though, he takes off all restraint, lets man go the limit. But today, man's being restrained. Then the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Who else can restrain evil in the world? And the wrath of man praiseth thee. God's going to make the wrath of man. And if he can't make it praise him, he won't let it happen, by the way. And then we're told here, it says, Thou restrainest the remainder of wrath. Vow and pay unto Jehovah your God. Let all that are round about him bring presents. Now, this is the time when the psalmist again says, His people are willing in the day of his power. My, this is a great psalm. Now we come to Psalm 77, and this is a psalm to Jeduthun. You remember that Jeduthun was a musician, and he's the chief musician, and Asaph wrote this psalm for him, either to play or to sing it. And now this is a psalm that reveals the time of deep soul-searching because of the perplexity in the minds of the people in that day. Faith has its problem, and faith can find a solution. And listen to the way it opens. I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. That's a good time to seek him, by the way, in the day of trouble. I do not know whether I read the letter yet or not. I was reading it here to myself of the man who lost his position. And he wouldn't listen to our program at all till he got out of a job, nothing to do. And then he got down right to the nitty-gritty. And when he did, he turned to the Lord, and the Lord saved him. It's well to cry to the Lord in the time of trouble. And he gave ear unto me. God will hear you, friends, if you're in trouble. You need, you can go to him. He's real. I hear a lot of soloists sing, oh, it's real. I sometimes wonder whether it is with them, the way they sing it and also the way they live. My friend, it's real, but it's not by me saying it. And it's not even because it's written here. It's because you find out it's true yourself. And he's already told us, taste of the Lord. See whether he's good or not. Try this thing out. Now he says here, In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My soul ran in the night and ceased not. My soul refused to become. I think his sower was not physical, but actually it's an open sower of the soul. And here's another wonderful thing he did, verse 6. I call to remembrance my song in the night. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing if you can sing at night, but I don't mean to sing out loud and wake up everybody. But... I remember my song in the night. Do you remember your song in the night? The night is the time that when you wake up, the fears come to you. Problems loom large. Everything in the dark looks bigger than it really is. And that's the time to worry. But can you remember your song in the night? This is a glorious thing. Now, there are some perplexing questions 
that are raised here, beginning at verse 7. Listen to this. Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he? And will he be favorable no more? Will he? Is then his loving kindness ended forever? Hath his word failed for all generations? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he shut up in anger his compassions? I would say there's a practical atheist. But I've asked those questions too. Maybe you have. You know, there are a great many of us today that are believers, but we practice atheism. Well, we act as if God doesn't exist and he doesn't hear our prayer. He's thrown us overboard and he's no longer favorable and he's no longer expressing his grace. My friend, God is good and he wants to be gracious to you. I don't know who you are today or what you've done, but God wants to be good to you and be gracious to you. My, this psalm, it gets right down where we live. Now let me drop on down, verse 13. Thy way, O Lord, is in the sanctuary, who is as great a God as our God. Now you'll remember that as we began this section, it's the Leviticus section of the psalm. We said the thing that's prominent here is the holiness of God because it's anchored to the sanctuary in the holy of holies. Now, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is as great a God as our God? And that is something that we need to recognize. And I think for believers today, forget not the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. We're enjoined to meet with God's people. And I don't believe God's going to let you go off in a corner or let me, right here on the radio, turn the radio off and enjoy the Word of God by myself. I think he'd dry me up in a moment. I think he'll do that for you too. We're to share this together. And we have to grow together. I don't believe that these super-duper saints today, I don't believe in them. God won't let you go way out ahead of me, friends. You will have to share the word with me and the blessing with me. And therefore, the way of God is in the sanctuary. And if you're going to find answers to your questions, you need to meet with God's people. I had a young man that came by the other evening to see me. He started a men's Bible class way up here on the desert in a little town. He's a bank officer, and he's got a group of men. He wanted me to come up and speak, and I couldn't go at that time at all, and I regretted it because he says we're not getting a word up there in the churches. Now, he says, we've just been meeting together. Well, may I say to you, there are a lot of good churches, though, today. I have a wonderful letter here, and I generally share them at the beginning of the program. And this party wrote and said this, I'm a Christian mother with five wonderful children, that God has given to us to guide for him. They're all saved, except the baby who's 17 months old. We're fortunate enough to be members of a Bible-teaching church where our pastor is led by God instead of man. So he's one of these precious men of God who has been rebuked and had his life threatened because of his boldness for God. Our cup truly is running over with joy as we see God work in the hearts of people and change their lives. 
Now, friends, that's unusual, and that's the reason I saved this letter to share it like this, because I hear a lot of criticism, but I want you to know there are a lot of good Bible-believing churches today that still remain. Now, if you have one where the Word of God is preached and taught, you go get with that group of people, and you can grow that way. You'll find the answer to a lot of your problems there, my friend. And I believe you will on this program, too. I believe as we meet around the Word of God, and I like the letter because it says something nice about a Bible-believing and Bible-teaching preacher. Now, you see, the devil is subtle today. He does not attack the Bible in a frontal attack. He's attacking the man who stand for the Word of God. That's been his method, by the way. Then he closes this wonderful psalm where he says, The waters saw thee, O God, the waters saw thee. They were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water. This is a scene that has to do with the sea. And verse 19 makes it clear. Thy way is in the sea, thy path in the great waters. Thy footsteps are not known. Thou didst lead thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And it refers specifically to God leading them across the Red Sea. And God is able to deliver his people today from the flood tide of atheism, lawlessness, and immorality. And I think this is the picture of it.